2009, October 1st. Today is Astronomy 141, Lecture 7, The Biological Revolution, What is Life? Okay, so we're continuing our discussion of different revolutions in, in, in thought that led to changes that bring us to the 21st century and when we can begin to discuss the idea of life on other worlds. Now, with the Copernican principle, we learned we weren't in any special place in the universe. We're on another planet circling another star. In the chemical revolution, we learned about the nature of matter. With the geological revolution, we got a little bit of a shock to our system. We found out that human history is way, way shorter than the physical history of the Earth. One of the ways to sort of visualize how big of a shock this is and why this is a problem, which actually still even today bothers people a lot, is take that four and a half billion years in round numbers for the age of the Earth and compress it into one year. And then take at face value the 6,000 years of human history that's behind those history-based estimates. That's 6,000 years of human history from the oldest early written records to today would fit into the last 40 seconds of the last minute of the last hour of the last day of that year. That's not, a very, that's not a, an insight which is necessarily going to build up your self-esteem. It means human beings have, are very, very young relative to the Earth. Well, hang on to your hats, because tomorrow when we talk about the universe, it's, it's going to get worse. So today we're going to talk about something that even, if you think the problem of the people had, we're really bothered by the idea of the antiquity of the Earth, the problems began to even multiply and how difficult and contentious these issues are when we start talking about biology in detail as a scientific enterprise. Because now, quite literally, we're talking about me, us. We're talking about life. So the question I'm going to deal with today is, is to explore the changes in our biological knowledge, the biological revolution, as I'm going to call it, which has led to great changes in how we view the phenomenon of life. Now, we're going to be, you'll notice towards the end of this class, a certain topic is missing, which we're saving towards another day. The first thing I want to look at is reviewing the idea of persistence of ancient notions that actually inform what kinds of inquiries you make and what kind of answers you get. And that's this ancient notion of spontaneous generation, that the origin of life, that there was a pathway for life to come from non-life. It now strikes us as an imminently silly idea but it was actually a serious scientific question into the middle of the 19th century AD. And it formed a kind of an intellectual set of constraints or blinders that informed what kind of experiments people did and how they interpreted the results of those experiments that actually held back progress in, in biology for a very long time. The other thing that is important for understanding the roots of the biological revolution that leads us to the 21st century is a technological advance of the invention of the microscope. This allowed new observations of microorganisms that greatly changed the whole game of how you did scientific inquiries on life because you could see that the life processes are small. Not atomic scale, but they're actually going on in sort of a cellular scale. And the whole discovery of cells and living cells, that living things are composed of smaller living things, was a real surprise and was necessary for progress. The other area in which uh, there was tremendous progress, but again, sort of start and stop, was in this area of heredity. How is it that traits are passed down from parents to children? Whether we're talking about dogs and cats and birds or plants or even human beings, there are obviously rules of heredity going on. How did we discover them? How does that inform us about what's going on? And it's not enough to simply know the empirical rules of heredity. What is the agency of heredity? And the discovery, finally, of genes and DNA 
that turned out to be the actual agents, not only of heredity, but they're able to store and transmit this hereditary information from organism to organism within a particular group of species, including people. That's the the key enabling insight that allows biology to actually emerge into the 20th and later 21st century. This is uh, an area which, in fact, is still unfolding even today. So we're going to be talking about the origin of the change in our views of life. Let's start with an old idea. There's Aristotle again. We're going to see a lot of Aristotle here and there, because Aristotle wrote a great deal. He wrote about just about everything. He was a really smart guy. But there was one expression in his vocabulary that did not seem to exist, and that's the words, I don't know, I have no idea. He wrote about everything with such great authority, whether he was writing complete crap or not, that people actually bought into it. When ancient knowledge was rediscovered in the late Middle Ages in Europe after the long Dark Ages, after the fall of the Roman Empire, Aristotle's stuff hit hit the European mind like just a shockwave because suddenly all these things that were mysterious and superstitious, here it was all written down in beautifully clear prose, there were all the answers. And so in a medieval mind which was prepared for received wisdom, receiving this wisdom from this old pagan Aristotle was just an an immense revolution. It was immediately incorporated into the teachings of the Roman Catholic Church of the time, and it was second only in holy writ to the books of the Bible. It was immensely influential in all kinds of areas, in astronomy, in physics, in chemistry, logic, mathematics. It it had an incredible far-reaching influence. That didn't seem to to differ when it comes to talking about biology, Aristotle had a tremendous influence. Now, Aristotle did not originate the idea of spontaneous generation. It is clear that it is a very ancient idea, so old it's often referred to as pre-Socratic, which means really damn old in Greece. It probably got its first expression really with Plato, but the clearest expression that came down to us from classical times comes from Aristotle's book, The History of Animals. And history really means here story of animals, his amazing descriptions of many different kinds of animals and plant life in various books. He wrote a big book on botany and a big book on animals, and it's the book on animals that concerns us here. Now, they saw this idea of spontaneous generation as a notion that life can arise from non-life. And it's based on a basic observation that seemed to be relatively common sense. For example, you put a piece of meat out on the table and accidentally forget about it, Sunlight falls on it, and it starts to rot and smell bad, and pretty soon these little white bugs called maggots start crawling around inside of them as if they suddenly came out of nowhere. You didn't see any eggs. You didn't see anything there. All of a sudden, one minute, there's sort of, you know, slightly smelly-looking gamey chunk of veal, and the next day there are some fairly big, wriggling little white gross worms inside of it. People thought of this as they came sort of spontaneously up out of the ground. The idea that things like mushrooms suddenly appear out of nowhere in, say, a pile of manure or something like that. It was a daily experience of things. There were even some stranger ideas. For example, there's a particular type of um, barnacle called a goose barnacle. It has a strong resemblance to what's often referred to as the barnacle goose, which has similar markings and colorations. And people actually thought that the barnacle goose, the large bird, actually was a generation from the goose barnacle because of these superficial similarities. And ideas brought down from Aristotle did nothing to disabuse us of this notion. The idea was that in addition to obvious reproduction from parents, they didn't, they didn't know what sex was, even if they didn't know how it worked necessarily, 
there's six billion people in the world, you actually don't have to know how it works at the mechanistic level for it to actually work. Ask any high school guidance counselor. But you do notice that there's very clear progression of parents with offspring. But there seemed to be this second channel for life to emerge, and that was the spontaneous generation. You saw animals, usually small ones, usually bugs and insects and things like that, from either putrefying earth or rotting flesh or rotting vegetable matter. But there were other places, and again, I'm sorry, this is lunchtime, but there were places like, for example, parasites appearing inside of people as well as other animals. They just simply happen. Some foreign matter gets inside the human being, and these worms are spontaneously generated from this. Now, what Aristotle really was, was doing was he was trying to tie together a self-consistent picture with this idea of the four elements that matter is made of. There's earth, air, fire, and water. If you look at living matter or animal flesh, for example, it's kind of solid and it's kind of wet. So animal flesh is sort of an amalgam of earth and water. The old expression that when you die, you return to the earth is exactly that. That's your, your sort of living matter is becoming back and becoming one with the element of the earth. So there was an elemental origin to this. But what was it that made the difference between this non-life? I mean, if I can just sort of put together, say, a pile of clay and make something in animal shape, a very evocative story, for example, from the book of Genesis is that of God forming Adam out of the clay. But what animates it? Well, if you ask someone like Aristotle, he would say there was a pneuma. There was a sort of an animating spirit that could be breathed into this matter. Maybe that animating spirit was fire. Maybe it was a vital heat that entered in this um, putrefying earth or vegetable matter. Any of you grow up on a farm? Oh, nobody in this class this time. Usually there's enough rural students here. If you've ever seen a large pile of manure, it's not a nice thing to get next to, but after a while it starts getting very, very warm. It starts to compost. So it's not surprising that in a warm pile of compost left there at some point, uh, insects start to appear out of it, uh, maggots start to appear out of it, uh, mushrooms start to grow. That warmth is kind of like an inner fire of some kind that's animating these animals to come up out of the manure pile. So it's almost a common sense kind of view when you can't see what's going on at the microscopic level for real. So this is a very, very potent idea, and it's very, very old, and it crosses cultures. It isn't just the Greeks. A lot of people had this idea. And there's a problem with ideas that are really good, and they kind of meet all of our, our, our sort of preconceived notions about things, about a breath of life or a spark of life or a mist, you know, if you want to make it the sort of fiery vapor of the pneuma of Aristotle, is they say, well, everything kind of fits together, so you kind of stop thinking about it, and then you start viewing the world through those goggles. And you stop sometimes seeing the world as it really is, even when the evidence is smacking you on the face. This particular idea of spontaneous generation had extremely long legs. But it was also given legs by the fact that biology is hard. Biology is really hard. Now, I'm an astrophysicist, and some people think astrophysics is really hard. Man, I, I'm glad I'm not a biologist sometimes. Even though I deal with things which are physically difficult or the mathematics is difficult, the pitiless complexity of biological systems just frightens me sometimes when I think about it as a laboratory exercise. Life is very complicated. And so as a consequence, doing experiments with life is also very complicated because it's very hard to control those experiments for outside influences. Ask any of my biologist friends. They spend all their time on controls, contamination, and process after process after process to get it right. 
It's way easier just go to the telescope and look through, I tell you. Um, and this is one of the things that's going to really get people when they try to do experiments. So we're in the, the age of reason. We're coming out of New, the Newtonian, uh, Copernican scientific revolution. The primacy of experiment through people like Galileo is coming to the fore. Great advances in chemistry where the experiments are pretty easy, relatively speaking, to control for. But when you get into biology, there were all these conflicting experiments, especially in the 17th century when all the other sciences were making great leaps forward with experiment, that when people started going after phenomena that started touching on this idea of spontaneous generation, there were compelling experiments that gave conflicting results that kept the idea alive. There are many examples. I'm going to give you two. The first of these is due to a man named Jean-Baptiste von Helmont, who lived in the uh, late 16th, early 17th century. He had a particular series of experiments, quite a number of them, in fact. But one that's very famous is he grew a willow tree in a pot of earth for five years without ever changing the soil. And he kept weighing the soil and he weighed the tree and showed that the tree increased in mass. But the soil didn't. And therefore, there was some other animating principle not in the soil coming through. Of course, what von Helmont didn't know was that carbon dioxide take up is a big piece of the building of plant tissues and water intake as well. He was continuing to water the plant. If he, in fact, had had any way to, if he had kept track of the weight of water he had fed his willow tree, and if he had a way, which he did not, of measuring the mass of carbon dioxide uptake, he, in fact, would have gotten the weights into balance. But he didn't know this because these are microscopic processes that are very difficult to measure. How do you measure carbon dioxide uptake in a tree? It's not easy. It turns out we have to do it nowadays with radioactive tracers and things like that. It's tough. Now, um, uh, just as an aside, von Helmont also had a very interesting, he, always, he thought this was great confirmation of the idea of spontaneous generation. And he actually stands as probably the last major scientist who really held on to the idea really tightly. Everyone thereafter that started having greater and greater doubts at varying degrees. One of the things that comes out of reading about him is he actually had a, a recipe for how to make field mice. You took a soiled bit of cloth, you added grains of wheat, and you wrapped it up and set it aside in a nice dark place in a barn for 21 days. Pretty soon, there were field mice in there. Cool. He may actually have tried that. But that's the kind of way people were thinking about this. Now, in the against column was a wonderful experiment by the Italian uh, scientist Francesco Reddy. The idea of this, the sort of, you know, it's a terrible, terrible thing to talk about at lunch, but the idea that maggots sort of were spontaneously generated in rotting flesh was a, was a commonplace for 3,000 years at least. What Reddy did was a very interesting experiment. He put, you know, rotting fish, rotting veal, or something like that into a jar, and he had two jars. This is how he set up his control. One jar was just left open to the air. The other jar was covered with sheer Venetian cloth, which would let through air but wouldn't let anything else through. And what he found is, after a while, if he was very careful about how he set up the experiment, the open jars had maggots within a few days. The cloth-covered jars never developed maggots. Now, in some sense, he was kind of lucky. The meat was not pre-infected with the eggs of flies. So he was very careful about how he did that experiment. Furthermore, if he did one layer, other layer of experiment where he laid the cloth directly on top of the flesh, that maggots would appear, but on the surface of the cloth, not underneath. And he noticed, and he kept some of those maggots, kept them around, let them hatch, and pretty soon he found out he actually had larval flies. So it was a beautiful experiment to show that the maggots were actually coming from the outside, probably from flies, but the flies didn't lay any visible eggs because the eggs were too small to see.
So he was able to show very clearly that there was something wrong with this classic picture of spontaneous generation. For people like Reddy, it was enough to say, this is probably complete crap, we're just missing an important detail. And for von Helmont, it simply confirmed this preconceived notion. I bring these up because they're very important lessons about how we bring preconceived notions to all inquiries, no matter how scientific they may be. And so one of the questions scientists always have to stop and ask ourselves is, is this really because I've set my experiment up right? Or is this because I've kind of predetermined what my result is? And just because I got the answer I expected, I am not as critical as I would be if I got a completely unexpected answer. And we have to do this. This kind of self-criticism of our techniques must be ruthless and relentless all the time. And sometimes it breaks down. And in no area has this been more difficult, perhaps, than it has been in the life sciences. Because, number one, the experiments are so hard to control by. And two, we come with a lot of preconceived notions. In fact, this preconceived notion, this idea of spontaneous generation, persisted into the middle of the 19th century. Now we're getting up into the age of elect- beginning of the, of the age of electricity. We're talking about advanced physics experiments. Astronomy is reaching out to the solar system. And the biologists are still arguing about spontaneous generation. There were two experiments that were undertaken in the, in the 1850s in France. There was a prize given to fa- come up with an experiment which would settle this question of spontaneous generation versus not once and for all. On the one hand was a very famous experiment by this man by the name of Felix Pouchet. What he did was he took hay, good old, good old straw, and kind of made straw tea out of it. He boiled an infusion of this. Because people knew that boiling things sterilized them. It killed whatever little beasties were inside of them. And with microscopes, they knew there were little microscopic beasties inside. But they, a lot of people believed those beasties were spontaneously generated from within that putrefying matter. So he took some hay, boiled the hell out of it, and then put it into a vessel, very carefully put the boiled matter and allow it to cool inside this vessel, and then fed oxygen into that vessel from um, water electrolysis, where you put an electric current through water, will break water molecules into hydrogen and oxygen. You separate out the oxygen and let it come down and provide air, because air was thought to be one of the animating media necessary for life, but you fed it oxygen that you made yourself, so you didn't bring in any outside influences. What he found was, pretty quickly, microorganisms started appearing in this otherwise sterilized hay being fed brand new fresh oxygen. It was an amazing experiment that seemed to conclude that these microorganisms were spontaneously generating. But it turns out that in reality, he got bitten by life. Life is very clever and adaptable. It turns out that he didn't know that there is a whole class of very heat-resistant spores that are not destroyed by boiling. For example, you may know of certain heat-resistant spores that sometimes get into the water system, and they're very worrisome because boiling water doesn't kill them. They get into your stomach, and then they hatch. Right? Cryptosporidium. If you've ever heard of cryptosporidium, that's a class of these particular best. They're bacteria that basically form a hard shell Life knows how to hunker sometimes when conditions get extreme. We're going to see this again in a couple of other places. It has interesting implications about the conditions under which life can actually arise. But it fooled Pouchet and others into believing that he'd proven spontaneous generation. The problem was contamination and control. The answer finally came in 1859 in an absolutely brilliant experiment by one of the great French biologists and chemists of the day, Louis Pasteur. Pasteur took two samples of broth. Some, some counts will tell you this is uh, beef broth. In fact, it was beet broth, urine, and, and uh, yeast culture put together. 
And he made two identical batches and split them among two glass vessels, which are shown here in these beautiful gooseneck jars. They're called a col de signe in French. He boiled the hell out of one and left the other unboiled. So he sterilized one, but left the other unsterilized. Air was then, the, the, the air coming in was sealed off from one side. That's how the liquid got in, the broth got into the vessel. But then he drew out with a glass blower this very long, thin tube. The idea of the thin tube is it would allow air through, but it should impede the progress of any airborne microorganisms from getting into the vessel. So he supplied it with air, but he made it hard for any beasties or other, say, wild yeast to get inside. Not surprisingly, the unboiled one never fermented. If you get yeast in contact with sugar, it will immediately begin the process of fermentation. People understood fermentation pretty well. I mean, we've been making beer and wine for longer than we've made just about anything else in human history. And those are both products of fermentation. So the unboiled one fermented immediately, started growing some nasty bits inside. It was obvious that, that this thing was not sterilized, but the sterile one did not grow anything until Pasteur broke off the end of the glass funnel on the end of the gooseneck here on this one and then dropped it into the, into the broth, almost immediately started to ferment. The reason? All the airborne yeasties, which are very common, that's why bread rises when it will leaven itself if left out for a long time. The, the old story of the Hebrews and their unleavened bread is because they couldn't leave the, the bread out long enough to grab natural yeasties. They had to make it right away. The air is full of yeast. They gathered in the, in the top of the crookneck and when introduced into it, bam. So we showed that the agencies of fermentation had to be brought from the outside. They did not spontaneously generate from within. By 1860, when this experiment was done, the European mind was ready to accept the fact that spontaneous generation was finally dead. They started understanding with the microscope and other studies that these microorganisms existed, and the whole idea that life coming from non-life just really wasn't a working idea. But they didn't have all the picture yet, so they needed a much clearer picture. Well, I'm going to suddenly back up about 200-odd years to a major technological innovation, which was part of what led to preparing the European mind for that final disproval of spontaneous generation only 150 years ago this year. And that was the invention of the microscope by Anton von Leeuwenhoek, the Dutch, the Dutch uh, scientist, in the uh, later portion of the 17th century. This is on the, on the, on the right hand here is a, a portrait of van Leeuwenhoek, and of course on the left here is the first of his microscopes. These are really hard. These are not the tube we're all used to seeing in the cartoon of the microscope. What you have is a very specially made, very high curvature glass lens here that's this little bead on the end, and you put your sample on the end of this little um, pin, and then this is how you brought that sample in and out and moved it around inside of this, and you held it up to your eye. This large plate here was to block the background so you can only see it. And you say, hold it up to a candle in a dark room. I've used a, or tried to use a, a reproduction of a Van Leeuwenhoek microscope. It's a real trick. I like the modern ones just a whole lot better. But in fact, it's, a, it's amazing. When you get used to it, you can see a lot of detail. And in fact, even this crude microscope allowed Van Leeuwenhoek to suddenly make leaps and bounds. The microscope was to biology what the telescope, Galileo's telescope was to astronomy. It revealed the worlds that were always there just out of reach of the frailty of the human eye. It led immediately to the discover of the cellular nature of matter. Whether it's animal matter or plant matter, everyone saw that there was a fundamental level of organization. That there were these little groups here which were often referred to as cells, little packets. 
they discovered that the spontaneous generation thing, that small insects that seemed to appear out of nowhere. Right? In my cupboard last week, all of a sudden a bag of rice had a whole bunch of moths inside of it. Oh my goodness, they spontaneously generated out of the, out of the rice grains. Or actually, if I'd gone in with a microscope, I would have seen tiny, teeny little um, moth uh, eggs that in fact had made its way through into the bag of rice. They began to discover these eggs for the first time. They were just too small to see. Flies, for example, the idea that maggots appearing, when they examined pieces of flesh, they could see actually after flies had visited the little tiny microscopic eggs, and then they watched those eggs grow into maggots. Finally, it was the discovery of not only the eggs leading to macroscopic big things like flies, but the discovery of an entire vast zoo of animals and plants that were too small for the human eye to see. In fact, they very quickly realized that in a single drop of supposedly pure water could be an amazing amount of life. Yeah, we were drinking this stuff. Uh, here are a bunch of rotifers found in water droplets just outside of Van Leeuwenhoek's door. He'd pick up pond water, and he could immediately classify not just a few, but tens or hundreds of brand new forms of life never yet seen before because they're too small to be seen with the unaided eye. This led to sort of some interesting shocks to the system. We sort of envisioned the world as sort of having all of its animals in it, all created in this original seven days of Genesis, and now we're starting to find out that most of the animal life on this planet is completely invisible to us. That's a rude shock. Just as rude as finding that most of the stars in the sky are invisible to our sight until viewed through the telescope that Galileo found not only a century before this, barely a century before this. Fleas, those little tiny black leapy things, were shown to be animals with tremendous detail. The more modern-looking microscope was invented by an Englishman by the name of Hook, following on Van Leeuwenhoek's ideas. And so here is a drawing. This is a very famous drawing from Hook showing Hook's flea. Under magnification, this thing looks like an actual animal you can imagine in a very bad night, Boshian nightmare bouncing down the hall. So we revealed that not only were these little animals, but they had all the structures of big animals just in, in miniature. It started really changing the way people thought about what it meant to be a living organism. And the idea of spontaneous generation, the fact that you saw eggs, therefore there were parents, and parents was what led to the, to the coming of next generations, was an extremely powerful idea. But interestingly, odd ideas kind of remained because, again, the microscopes were imperfect. We had imperfect knowledge, and we brought as a template on our observations and interpretations, our preconceived notions. Here's an example of where the microscope, a marvelous tool, reveals something about the nature, for example, in this case, of human reproduction, but the interpretation of those data was guided by an older concept that was wrong but hard to root out of the head. Now, we know that heredity is an old, old problem in biology. How do we inherit traits from our parents? There were lots of different ideas, okay? And it was pretty clear that some kind of heredity had to occur, right? What's one of the first things you hear out of people's mouths when you see a brand new baby, other than, oh, how cute, even if they look like Winston Churchill at that time? The second thing you see is, oh, yes, you have your mother's eyes, your father's nose. You know, and later in life you say, yeah, you got your dad's pattern baldness. Um, clearly, there, there are chains of heredity. You look like your parents for the most part, which is kind of a good thing. You look like your siblings. Why is that? People didn't know. 
One idea was the idea of blending inheritance. So somehow, okay, the male brings some part, the female brings the other parts, and we kind of mix them all together, and eventually you get an averaging out. This is kind of a silly idea, but it's a kind of amazing persistence, right? Even, you know, science fiction program, science fiction stories from the early 20th century, an episode of South Park a few months ago, for heaven's sake, views the distant future where all human beings are kind of a light brown blend of African, Asian, uh, Hispanic, and white. But that doesn't actually happen. There still are separations of traits. If you take a, a brown-eyed person and a blue-eyed person, their children five generations later are not sort of a muddied color of blue or brown eyes, some intermediate color. They're blue or they're brown. It doesn't all dilute itself down. So this idea of dilution of traits is an ancient and wrong one for the most part. So that was blending inheritance. The other is acquired inheritance. We all start out the same, but we pick up traits through some means, as yet unmentioned, from our parents. So while you know, we're developing in our mother's wombs, we pick up some characteristics from her. If she listens to Mozart at the same time, we get smarter. Right? That nonsense... That nonsense is basically a reoccurrence of the ancient idea of acquired inheritance. We just can't get these stupid ideas out of our heads. Then there's pangenesis. The body cells contribute to the uh, sperm cells or egg cells in the male or the female. And so everybody gets a role. It's kind of a, the body as democracy. Okay, there's a few liver cells kind of work their way down there, some heart cells, some brain cells, some eye cells. And they view these things as all kind of getting together and then they kind of all put their pieces together into either the sperm or the egg sex cells. This particular idea called pangenesis, a bringing together to create, um, is a pretty persistent one as well, although it's pretty much fallen away. It was an idea, for example, that was what one of the mechanisms that Charles Darwin thought was the correct mechanism for heredity when he started looking at his rules of natural selection. So why is it that multiple generations sort of look like each other? Well, one of the old ideas for this is, in fact, that all human beings who have ever lived were all pre-created. When the first microscopes were turned on um, animal and human sperm, they found, in fact, that it contained these little sperm cells with sort of these bulbous-shaped um, heads here with these long, wiggly tails. Now, immediately, a fellow by the name of Hartsucker, and this is 1694, so the microscope was a relatively recent invention. They started looking at everything. He saw inside of this the shapes that, oh, well, what you've got is a little tiny human being all curled up inside called the homunculus. Now, we want to laugh today, but this idea is at least 3,000 years old. The idea was that the sperm contains a tiny copy, a complete developed copy of a human being just in miniature, and that what has to happen is that that little human has to grow. The early microscopic observations seemed to confirm this. They saw shapes that were close enough that this idea of the homunculus kind of projected itself on what they were seeing through their not terribly good optics of their microscopes. Now, if you thought about this, and even into the 17th and 18th century, people thought about this. They said, well, okay, that's nice. You got a little dude inside there, and he grows up into a big dude, or a little girl and grows into a big girl buried up inside of here. All right, so how, if this is just in the sperm, how does the mother's traits get in there? How does the mother's eye color or hair get into this homunculus if it's already fully formed? You didn't answer that question. There's also this problem of infinite regress. You still didn't answer the problem of how a whole bunch of undifferentiated parts eventually become a proto-human being. 
Ah, so one idea said, well, you know, let's say this is a male. The male has sexual organs. In those sexual organs are little tiny homunculi, which themselves contain tiny homunculi, which contain tiny homunculi, and it's homunculi all the way down. Even if you admit only 6,000 years of human history from Adam to the present, you end up with the homunculi so small and so many of them in geometric regress that you get into the problem of nearly infinite regress. You get into things that are small even by their limited notions of atomic size. In fact, it doesn't take very many iterations of this before you get smaller than what we now know to be the size of the atom. It don't work. So how does this problem of heredity work? The ideas they had weren't working very well. Well, the answer started to emerge in the 19th century with a series of brilliant experiments undertaken by the Austrian uh, monk Gregor Mendel. It's very hard to control breeding habits in animals. It's very, very difficult, as any animal breeder will tell you, to, to keep absolute control. But garden peas are quite another matter. They go through a generation a year. You can control their pollination very carefully. You can do controlled experiments. And Mendel did a series of absolutely brilliant experiments where he basically controlled the breeding of garden peas. And you can look at various traits. For example, round peas versus smooth peas versus wrinkly peas, green pods versus yellow pods, tall plants versus small plants, purple flowers versus white flowers. And what he found was that as he looked over the data from year after year, generation after generation of peas, that two rules for heredity began to emerge. The first of these is that hereditary factors come in pairs. One is gotten from each parent. Furthermore, when the parent gives those pairs of hereditary factors over when they mate, they split those hereditary factors in half and give one of the pieces to their mate who provides another half to make the two halves to make the the hereditary factor. The other piece, that, that was one insight, so you get one piece from each parent. But the real key insight was that one of these factors was dominant and the other factor was recessive. Meaning one of those factors, if it's present, makes the rules despite the presence of the other factor. So this first rule that they come in pairs and that those pairs have a dominant and recessive trait were key to understanding the laws of heredity. Now, the usual way to just demonstrate this is with showing pea flowers. I don't know, pea flowers don't do much for me. So we'll use something a little closer to home, the heritability of eye color in humans. Turns out that brown eyes is a dominant trait, and blue eyes is the other half of that, or the recessive trait that comes in pair with it. Now, let's say the parents, and I just happen to arbitrarily pick, the male has brown eyes and the female has blue eyes, but I could easily have swapped these. So let's say that this guy is a, the, the guy here is a pure brown eye, which means got both traits present in the genes. And the female is a pure recessive blue eye. So purebred blue eye, purebred brown eye. Or the actual word for those of you who know biology is these guys are homozygous. Okay, so they get busy and they have four kids. The male gives a big B, the female gives a little B, and the only possible combination is big B, little B, big B, little B, big B, little B. And they got male, female, male, female, the way I've drawn it. So family number one. So all their children have brown eyes because brown is dominant. Just because it's blue does not make brown plus blue equals icky stuff. It makes brown. Now, brown girl meets brown-eyed boy. Brown-eyed boy is also heterozygous here, mixture of dominant of brown and blue-eyed genes, and they get busy in the second generation. But now the possible combinations are brown-brown, brown-blue, where we're using uh, father to, to mother, blue-brown, and blue-blue. 
So we end up with three children on average. And obviously, there's a, there's a random chance here. So you've got to do an averaging here. Three children could have brown, blue, brown eyes, but one out of four should have blue eyes. Oh, look. She's got grandma's blue eyes, even though both parents were brown-eyed. And the reason is because of the their, their heredity of these two different traits, splitting and then being shared among them, and this idea of dominance and recession. So once you see these rules, you suddenly get to understand how traits are transmitted. Yes, ma'am. Question. You know, I knew someone was going to answer that question, and I realized it five minutes before I came to class as I was going, I don't know. I think it's a different set of it's a different set. There's there's green and hazel and stuff. I don't know. That's a great question. I don't know why green eyes are there. Everyone uses the example of brown and blue because it's a strong dominant recessive. So microscopic studies building on this idea. So Greg, sorry, let me back up just a little bit. Gregor Mendel's idea was absolutely brilliant. It really laid down the foundations of it. But Mendel made one fatal error. He didn't publish his work where anyone else could see it. And it was lost for nearly a half a century or more. So a tremendous amount of, of progress could have been made if anyone just knew the progress had been made. Meanwhile, things were proceeding along other lines, which would have been explicable if they knew Mendel's laws, but couldn't. So, for example, the microscope was beginning to study the fertilization of, of cells. In particular, sea urchins happen to be the one that's even still used in biolabs today. Sea urchin fertilization turns out to be pretty easy to see. The egg cells are really big, for example. So even a modest microscope can get this. And what they saw was that during the act of fertilization, the sperm here, this little tiny thing, latches onto this gigantic egg. And then if you watch carefully, you notice that the, this packet of junk has been dumped in there by the sperm, slowly makes its way towards the other packet of stuff that's in the middle of these things and merges. They called this merging body, according to the German biologist, the nucleus, the kernel inside the, the uh, cell. And they noticed that after that merger occurred, all of a sudden this egg began to differentiate into individual cells, and all of a sudden you had, well, a proto-sea urchin beginning to form. So they recognized that whatever was the trigger of development, it was going on in the nucleus of the cell, but they didn't know what it was that was in that nucleus. Later studies with salamander eggs, which were, which were stained by a German by the name of Fleming, found that in fact inside the nuclei, if you watched the cell division process, which Fleming named mitosis, in fact you saw that the nucleus contained these little colored threads, which, he gave, which someone else had given the name chromosomes, or color-bearing bodies. And he saw that these little threads split apart into two halves, with half going into one new cell and half going into the other. Now, unfortunately, what he didn't realize, what, what he was watching in his microscope was the splitting of Mendel's factors, Mendel's hereditary factors. They always, Mendel found statistically they came in pairs. Here was the physical splitting of pairing going on. But Mendel's work was completely unknown to Fleming, so he didn't make the connection that this splitting was important. He thought it was just perfect replication and two perfect copies were being sent in both directions. Where what was really happening was things were being cut in half and one trait was going one way and the other trait was going the other to combine together to make up the final cell. It really wasn't until 1910, well into the 20th century, that people finally started figuring this out. They rediscovered Mendel's work, and in a brilliant series of classic experiments by Morgan and Sturtevant at Columbia, using the rapidly breeding Drosophila fruit fly, not only re rediscovered Mendelian heredity, 
but found that sex-linked traits, the next piece that Mendel couldn't actually deal with because he was dealing with garden peas, but in animals, in this case the animal was the fruit fly, that you could identify those factors as or genes as they came to be known, the factor of generation, and found that the genes were in fact exactly identified with the chromosomes. So the chromosomes were the carrier of the genetic information, of the instructions that says, this is how you make a fruit fly, this is how you make a sea urchin, this is how you make a pea. So they began to see that the, the genetic material was in the nucleus, that it was on the bodies called chromosomes in the nucleus, and that all of a sudden this pairing, this splitting and carrying on of hereditary information, there was Mendel's statistical result writ large and actually occurring, being played out in front of you underneath your microscope. So now the question, having closed the loop between the statistical laws of heredity and the physical fact of heredity and cell division going on, the question was, so how exactly do genes carry information? What is it about them that tells you how to make blue eyes versus brown eyes? That took another 40 years. Now in the 1930s, people began to chemically take apart the chromosomes and found it consisted of proteins and these really huge polymer molecules called dioxoribonucleic acid, or DNA. And they couldn't figure out which one was the important one, which one was carrying the, which was the hereditary component, which was the hereditary factor. It wasn't until X-ray crystallography was brought to play on this after the Second World War that Watson and Crick were able to find that the structure of the DNA molecule was in fact a double helix, the famous now iconic view of the double helix, the, the code of life. What they found is it's in fact made up of four base pairs, and we'll talk more in detail later in the class about how DNA works, but there were four base pairs that coded like words all of the information necessary to build proteins and RNA to go into cell machinery. Furthermore, it not only carried instruction, but it was able to replicate. This is how you split factors off. So here it was. This was the carrier of heredity. It was a molecule. A very, very big molecule, but a molecule nonetheless. And it had a name. It was DNA, dioxyribonucleic acid. So we've gone from mysterious breath of life to biochemical process. This is a huge change in our view of life that occurred over many thousands of years. It brings us to a conclusion that many people find uncomfortable, but is in fact a fact of nature. Life is a physical phenomenon that is governed by understandable laws that make testable predictions. All that stuff about matter and chemistry, life is made up of those same atoms, and it is atomic and molecular processes that underlie the machinery of life. Now, saying we understand that does not mean we could make any form of life we want or that we can predict how life will behave. Life, living systems are hugely complex. But what this says is at the heart, what makes something living is buried in its biochemistry. Now the implications of this biological revolution are still being played out in laboratories all over the world and on this campus. We've made great advances in the last 50 years since Watson and Crick's discovery of DNA in areas like molecular genetics and molecular biology that's putting these very broadly described ideas in this lecture on a very firm experimental and empirical basis. It gives us great confidence in this. We've gone from not knowing what the heck DNA was or how it works, and in 50 years we can manipulate DNA in the laboratory to almost but not quite create new forms or modified forms of life. What's important is this insight is absolutely essential for the tale that we're about to tell in this class. 
I find it really weird that I'm an astronomy professor talking about biology in a biology class. I got to say something about sex, and it was in the curriculum. <laughs> it's essential for understanding the nature and requirements for life, because if I want to ask the question, can life arise somewhere else in our solar system and the universe, I got to know how it works. What are the chemical requirements? What are the biochemical requirements? What are the energy requirements for life? We've begun to set the stage for answering that question sensibly. It was unanswerable as many as 10, 20 or 30 years ago. It's now we're beginning to find answers. Any questions? Excellent. We'll see you all again tomorrow.